Hi, this is Arnie Arneson, and this is Race Class. It also happens to be the Thursday edition of The Attitude, but it will go up separately as Race Class. This is episode number four. And as many of you know that there has been legislation that has been restricting the teaching of race and racism in public schools and government entities, and it has spread across the country. So as an effort to sort of begin to understand what is happening to us, I reached out to Boston University law professor, Jonathan Feingold. And I said to him, we need to do something. We need to teach people what is happening to us. I feel like we're being manipulated. So once a month, and we've been doing this since January, we have a course, or maybe it's a conversation where you can hear us approach race and racism from a place of curiosity, history, rather than fear and anxiety. And again, BU Law Professor Jonathan Feingold Scholarship explores the relationship between race, law, and the mind sciences. And this is episode four, lesson four. We're already up to that, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us. And as I was getting ready for the show, I kept looking at all the stories that are coming out of you know, places like Florida and DeSantis and coming out of places like Michigan with Chris Rufo and, and realizing that you know there are so many master players here who are playing us, playing our fear, playing our ignorance, uh, basically sort of connecting dots that come up with conclusions that seem so toxic that I'm really grateful that lesson four is about race and racism as a political strategy, because we are basically, I think, in a tsunami of political strategies where race is being played over and over again. And they feel like they've been empowered because of what happened in Virginia with Yunkin. And now we're seeing variations on a theme being replicated across the United States. So welcome back to the program. Thanks, Arnie. As always, it's a joy to be here. For anyone listening, the conversation that we're going to have today, which is really helping us to think about and see race and racism as a political tool, is something that other folks have written extensively about. So people like Heather McGee, scholars like Heather McGee and Ian Haney Lopez, we can post some of their work either on Arnie's Facebook page or on Twitter, but that's a place where you can just dive deeper into the you know relatively limited conversation that we're going to have today. And, you know, for either new listeners or longtime Arnie listeners, you know, I guess the dirty little secret of this conversation is that we're doing critical race theory. Like, that's what it is. Like, it's, you know, it might seem sort of like modest, but that's actually because critical race theory in a lot of ways is just trying to bring, you know, an honest, clear-eyed approach to race and racism in the United States, uh, among other places. And as Arnie gestured to... The place we're taking the conversation today or our, you know, our lesson is race or racism as a political strategy that tends to serve political and economic elites. And you might ask, all right, well, so to what end? Well, one end is the eradication of public education as we know it. Uh, folks like Catherine Joyce have been doing a lot of great reporting on this. Uh, Jennifer Berkshire also, who we've mentioned before. But there's, you know, a longstanding but resurgent campaign to erode faith in, defund, 
uh, and you know, dismantle public education as we know it for a number of different reasons. That's the political goal. Race and racism is the tool. And that's the conversation we'll have today. Well, you mentioned public education. I think people need to understand it's beyond that. They're actually questioning all public institutions, all public institutions. And it turns out that, you know, public education is convenient because of the last two years of the pandemic. I mean, let's be honest, you know, we have to put this into the, the moment we're living in. And we know there were significant challenges for public education. There was so much homeschooling going on. Schools were shut down. Some schools opened, some schools didn't. And then all of a sudden there was this huge vulnerability within the public education community. And this was the time to strike. But this is just one of the institutions that I think that they're using as a way of sort of undermining our faith in everything ultimately happens in sort of a democratic society. But what I found fascinating in your article is really what you call your mini lesson, race as a social construct. And here's what I wrote in big red letters, Jonathan. I wrote, race is actually code. It's a code. That's why they use it. You don't have to say much, you just have to say black. You don't have to say much, you just have to say white. You don't have to say much, you just have to say Asian. And then all of a sudden, all these images come into play because it has become a code, a shorthand term for something else. And I think that's something that I, I hadn't really thought about, but it is a social construct. What do you mean by that? And sort of flesh that out for our audience. Yeah, and so just to give everyone a heads up of where we're going, we're going to do a mini lesson on what does it mean for race to be a social construct? You know, this is the sort of lesson that you really need a full semester, if not a full year of school to do. We're gonna to try to reduce it to about four or five minutes. Uh, we'll see how we do. And then our main event is going to be, all right, well, if race is a social construct, why create this thing called race and why wield it? One answer is that it's a really potent political strategy that serves, you know, three um, different ends. One is to divide, uh, another is to distract, and a third is to defend, what I'll refer to as the three Ds, to divide you know, multiracial grassroots coalitions who pose a threat to systems that benefit the 0.1%, to distract, to distract us all from our shared interests and the actual systems uh, that oftentimes produce the precarity that we live in, and the underlying political project that's um, at play, and then defend as in defend existing inequality. That's where we're headed. And so we'll start with this mini lesson. So yeah, Arne, you just use this term social construct. We hear it a lot. We can say it. But if pressed, my sense is we often struggle to say precisely what we mean. Again, mm -hmm. when we say that race is a quote unquote social construct. Basically, it means that race is something humans in a particular time and place created as opposed to, for instance, some inherent biological reality like DNA that just happens to exist regardless of, you know, time, space, uh, etc. And here, when I say race, I mean at least three different things. I mean categories, I mean meanings, and I mean rules. So categories, racial categories, whether it be white, black, Asian, or any other category, is something that humans created in a particular time and place. These categories did not pre-exist the culture in which they first arose in. When we say race is a social construct, we also mean that people constructed or created the meanings that we associate with those categories. Exactly. 
And meanings can mean different things. It, they can be specific traits or attributes, you know, what we would think of as a stereotype, whether we think of a particular group as hardworking, uh, whether we think of them as, you know, good at a particular endeavor, like those are traits. But meanings also are attitudinal. And we can think of this the level of the individual, but also at society. So societal esteem. Which groups do we understand society to love and to respect and to invest in? All of those meanings, whether it be attitudes, whether it be specific traits, were constructed. People created them through oftentimes politically motivated narratives and stories that we tell. Mm -hmm. And then what is also socially constructed are the rules that determine who gets in which category. And we can think of these as gatekeeping rules. These rules are just so deeply entrenched in the society that many of us were born into and grew up and we don't even think about them or notice them, but it's everything from skin color to hair texture, to nose shape, to place of ancestry, to accent, to a whole range of cues, some of which are phenotypic, how we look, some of which are um, ancestral, for instance. And those rules can change over time, but they determine the categories that we get into. So the upshot, you know, this was our very quick lesson on race as a social construct is that race is something that we created. Not only did we create it, but as you were talking, I wrote down two words, ready? The two words I wrote down is you have to be taught, it needs to be repeated. You have to be taught, it needs to be repeated. And as you point out, it's sometimes it's taught so much, it's repeated so much, you don't even think about it anymore. You don't even realize that they framed it for you, that they've taught it for you. You stop seeing certain things because you were basically told not to have to see them anymore. So taught and repeated. And one of the things that we're seeing is what are they going after? They're going after public education. Think about that. What does it mean? It's taught and repetition. It's taught and repetition. And that just reinforces this mini lesson about the idea of the social construct. And the social, social construct was something that was created, but it isn't just created. It's been reinforced and reinforced. And that also means that if it was created, it can change. And that's the threat, is that that social construct, that, that idea of teaching, you can be taught something else, but they don't want that threat. That's all right. And another question that often will come up right now is, is like, whoa, so do you mean that race isn't real? If it's something we created, if it's a social construct, is it somehow not real? The answer is like, no. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, race isn't real and it's real at the same time. Another thing you could say is that race is something that was socially constructed, but for all relevant purposes, it's quite real at least in the sense of the material and the symbolic impact it has our individual lives and society as a whole. You know, and we could just bring in a couple other examples of social constructs that we would never minimize as somehow unreal. And you can start with a hammer. Humans created hammers. They're social constructs, but they're very real, especially if you inadvertently hit your finger when you're trying to hit a nail. International borders. There's like an attempt to actually build a wall to separate the United States and Mexico or what we understand to be these two nation states. There's just an inherent organic about that border. And it certainly determines a whole lot of life outcomes. And also think of currency, money, dollars. We created it. We certainly, um, it's certainly real in every relevant sense. Like 
I actually have no idea if Bitcoin or crypto is real. I don't understand that at all. But again, something that humans created and it's treated as if it possesses a meaning. And, you know, race is in many ways no different than that. We created it, but it still wields incredible power over our lives in ways that we often can't even see. I want to go to the money thing. And it makes me smile because I keep thinking of all the liras I have in my basement and all the francs I have in my basement, but they're not useful anymore because now it's the euro. So I want people to think about this. Yes, it was money. Yes, it had value. Yes, it was created. And then guess what? They created something else and it's called the euro. And, and I think to look at it that way and to look at race is to really suddenly begin to grasp exactly what you're talking about because no one's ever made that analogy for me, but it's like, oh my God, of course. So just right there, it's like a light bulb moment. But we talk about the fact that we created race, but there had to be a reason for this. And I think the reason takes on a lot of meaning when we understand why it became either perceived as necessary or essential or a power play to be able to define people by race. Yes, that's a great question. You know, like there's certain, it's reasons why we created hammers, reasons why we created international borders, reasons why we created money. And so a question is, well, why create this thing called race and why continue to wield it? And the short answer is potent political tool. And I've said, I said this a few minutes ago, that serves the interests of political and economic elites. In other words, racism can be handy if your goal is to maintain the existing order of things by dividing everyone else. In other words, racism can be helpful if your goal is to undermine trust in and defund public education. And so then how? Uh, and it's through what I've referred to as the three Ds. I'm going with alliteration in honor of our mutual friend, Lucas Mann, who I think recently visited you and is a tremendous writer. And so the three Ds, divide, distract, and defend. So let's start with divide. Race and racism is a tool that can be used to divide us and in so doing, diffuse multiracial coalitions that are capable of restructuring the economic and political order. I have two examples. I'm not sure if we'll have time for both, but we'll just start with Exhibit A. Bacon's Rebellion, uh, antebellum Virginia, 17th century Virginia. You can think of this as the moment of creating the hammer. Okay. Somewhat complicated story, but the basics are this. And Heather McGee is the sort of scholar to go through for like a deeper dive into this. But basics are you have an uprising that features an alliance between poor people of both African and European descent. These are groups with distinct ancestry, but a lot of shared interest, particularly material interest, shared interest in a society that's dominated by a few landowning economic and political elites. And this burgeoning coalition naturally concerns the ruling class. And so a question is, how do you divide and conquer? How do you diffuse the coalition? And one is, well, you create this thing called race. You create racial distinction. And even more specifically, you create distinct categories, white on the one hand, black on the other. Then you ascribe different meanings to those categories in ways that ascribes value to whiteness. Then you create gatekeeping rules that determines who gets into what. Turns out European ancestry gets you into white. African ancestry gets you into black. 
And we can think a little bit more about the meaning uh, that's ascribed to these categories, and it entails material and psychological benefits if you happen to be in the white category. Can we Material- just, just touch on, on the Bacon's yeah. Rebellion? I want people to understand because I, I didn't know about it and I read about it and I was like blown away because when you think about it, there was a joint economic concern between the indentured servants, the enslaved and the free black people. Indentured servants for the most part were, were white people, okay? And the enslaved and the free black people were obviously people of color, but they had the same similar interests. So they could sort of see themselves as sort of locking arms and wanting to be part of this rebellion. And so the best answer they had was, how are we successful in winning this rebellion is to divide the indentured from the enslaved and the free black people. I mean, I, th- I think if you look at it that way, you suddenly realize what the technique was. That's the division. You know, and then you find out that in 1705, what does Virginia do? They pass the Virginia Slave Code. So they kind of reinforce it with, you know, with a law and the law targets what? It targets the black, the enslaved. It doesn't target the indentured. So when you look at these things, you're like, oh my God, but this took place in 1676. Look at how long ago and look at how refined we've gotten in 2022. Yeah. So thank you, Arnie, for getting us even deeper into the story. And uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But just in thinking about, so we often, you know, there's these recurrent just questions that are asked in political space about why do poor whites often support policies that don't actually benefit their material interests? Like, and part of it is because the psychological benefits of whiteness entrenched at the time of Bacon's Rebellion are pervasive and they're significant and they're, they can be hard to let go of. And when you think about, well, what, what do you mean by psychological benefits? It turns out we continue to live in a racially hierarchical society at a minimum, if we're just thinking about the social esteem, the societal esteem that different groups enjoy as a function of race. And that has always been a powerful tool that special interests that a select group of elites can wield in order to divide. And, you know, we'll get more into this, but that was, so the hammer was forged in Bacon's Rebellion and like in that antebellum period, but it remains a tool that can be used to um, divide and diffuse. And the most recent example is the summer of 2020. When we had a global uprising for racial justice, it was multiracial. It was multigenerational. And it wasn't just about racial justice. It also encapsulated broader critiques of an economic order, a political and economic system that is fueled by exploitation that leaves almost everyone in a pretty precarious just daily life. Regardless of race, like middle class is no longer a buffer against having to worry about rent, against having to worry about health care, against having to worry about, you know, clean water or just your utilities working. And so one, re- one way to just understand the threat that the summer of 2020 posed to a limited group of political and economic elites, you know, you can think of as just like, an example, like the Koch network, but, you know, other, you know, essentially American oligarchs also under threat here. You had 
a bit of a paradigm shift where the focus was on the system and the critique was directed at the system. And so if one of the moves of dividing, and this is going to help us sort of transition into distracting. So dividing and sort of hone in Bacon's rebellion. What you try to do is you try to get people to identify their shared interests as a function of racial identity, as opposed to like class or other sorts of identity. And by doing that, you can diffuse multiracial coalitions that have the potential to reorder, restructure society. It also enables you to distract from the source of precarity. If the story people are being fed and the story that they're telling themselves that we are in, that the primary social conflict is one that's, for instance, white against black or white against people of color or even something like liberal conservative, that is obscuring that the conflict is between the 0.1% and everyone else. And, you know, if, and you don't just like take a moment and think if the amount of grassroots energy and animus that is directed at immigrants who are like always racialized as like brown um, and in different ways, but all that, if it was actually directed at the institutions, the corporations, the special interests that have rigged a system that is the reason why so many people can't find good paying jobs, or even if they do find good paying jobs, can't get benefits, or even if they do find good paying jobs with benefits, healthcare costs remain astronomical and housing costs mean that home ownership is out of reach. But immigration is racialized in a way so that we are divided and distracted from seeing our um, shared interests. And we're seeing that fight right now about Title 42. I mean, exactly what's going on right now, for example, at the Mexican-Texas border, where if you are Hispanic or coming from a Latin American country, they were imposing Title 42. If you were coming in from Ukraine, they were ignoring Title 42. The problem is they were all fleeing. You know, they were all they were they were all coming because of the fear of their safety. The difference was one was perceived white, European, Ukrainian. The other one is perceived as a a brown person of color. And yet Title 42 is supposed to be generic, but it wasn't being enforced generically. So is this being perceived as being anti-white? No, it's saying it should be a level playing field. But you point out in, in one of the one of your notes that unfortunately, when you ter- use the term racial justice, they've been able to sort of diffuse or divide by saying they don't really mean racial justice. They mean anti-white. So they've even taken the terminology away from us. That's what's so scary to me, Professor Feingold, is that they've taken the words away and they've distorted them. Yeah, I mean, the past you know, 18 months, almost two years since that um, uprising in the summer of 2020, there has been a concerted, well-funded, coordinated disinformation campaign that has trafficked in distortion and caricature of this thing called anti-racism, this thing called critical race theory, to try to cultivate a narrative that anti-racism is racist, that CRT is anti-white, and the goal is to divide and to conquer and to distract and to, you know, push a specific 
one of a number of agendas, including eroding faith in public schools and institutions, and then provide cover for defunding them through anything, you know, from charter expansion to uh, voucher programs to, you know, what's happening in the, um, to Supreme Court right now that is, you know, further dissolving any separation between uh, church and state. We only have uh, a few minutes left, so I'm going to you know, pick up the pace a little bit and just to like hit a couple key points. So we've been talking a lot about divide, a little bit about distract. When we perceive the conflict to be just some like crude racial conflict, what are we distracted from? One is the material problems we've, we all face, which we've, um, our shared interests, something that we've mm-hmm. touched on. We also are distracted from the source of those problems. It's not because some vulnerable population is just trying to survive. That is the reason why we can't get good paying jobs is because over the past 40, however many years, a particular economic system that has been deregulated has come into place that prioritizes corporate profits over just compensation for labor. It's, you know, it's prioritized labor exploitation in a particular sort of way. And so we're also distracted from the actual beneficiaries of this underlying economic order, who are often the parties that are funding and seeding both the infrastructure and financing, if not intellectual capital, for the disinformation campaign. And again, what's the underlying project? Well, it's hard to see when we're trapped in disinformation. But on the one hand, you can think of it as deregulation. You want corporations to just be able to pollute without consequence, extract labor without compensation, or, you know, somewhat more narrowly, defund public education. The last piece I'm just going to run through really quickly, sorry, Arnie, for speeding up, is to defend. We we need a B-side for these, I'm realizing, because you can never get through everything. We're always rushing at the end. But the third D, just to get it on the record, is race and racism, particularly through those meanings we associate with racial categories, offers a mechanism to rationalize, explain, and justify existing racial stratification, existing racial inequality. We'll talk a lot more about how that's playing out in the admissions litigation that's um, now uh, off to the Supreme Court, but I've been talking for too long as it is, so I will pause. Race Class, Episode 4. Race by design, racism as political strategy. Make sure you tune in next month when we have our next version of Race Class. And we're grateful to be you, Law Professor Jonathan Feingold, for providing us with this great opportunity to go to school at no cost. So thank you so much. We will schmooze tomorrow, everyone. Ciao. All you folks that you own my life, you never made a sacrifice. Demons there on my trail. Standing at the cross the rolls of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right Hands that grab me on the every side
protect what I keep inside All the reasons why I live my life Try to tell you what you want, try to tell you what you need 